Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Music and Spinner.com, where you can get free MP3s, exclusive interviews, and more. Video bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 234 for February 4th, 2010. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 85. Security Now is brought to you by GoToAssist Express, the easy way to provide instant tech support to all your customers remotely. Support smarter with GoToAssist Express. For a free 30-day trial, go to gotoassist.com slash security. And by audible.com. To download a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash security now. Time for Security Now, the show that covers all the uh, issues in security. And with us right now, Mr. Steve Gibson. He is our guru of security, and he has come down from the mountaintop to share the latest findings with us. <laughs> or, or out of my cave, as the case may be. <laughs> yeah. with, and those of you who watch, we do this show live Wednesdays at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern time at live.twit.tv. And it's fun to watch because Steve has now three PDP-8s behind him blinking but not really doing anything are they i mean they're not are they are they uh, are i don't know are they simulating global thermal nuclear war i mean what are they up to no they're just there entertaining me <laughs> it's great it looks so good and this and what i enjoy is the speculation in the chat room about what the heck that is <laughs> some people say binary clock some people say oh no steve's uh that's steve's server running in the background there <laughs> well what's hysterical is the is the amount of time and ingenuity and trouble I went to to get just exactly the right feel <laughs> to the do-nothing blinking light display. So they're running a program. It's called Deep Thought. <laughs> and, you know, and I, and it's, I wrote it in the last few months. It's brand new, fresh PDP-8 code running on those little PDP-8 kits. In fact, I have a note here in our errata. Um, the, uh, I... When I put the pages up, the the guy who designed the kit said, "Well, you know, Steve, if you collect at least fifty people, um, I'd be willing to, you know, I mean that that that's enough to to justify another complete kit run." And we have collected something like fifty-seven people. Um, they're now uh, letting him know, and the the window closes on January 8th, Monday morning, January 8th at 8 a.m. Pacific. He Fe- said, I, I hope it's February 8th because... Oh, yeah, February 8th, sorry. <laughs> okay. uh, he said, I have to set some sort of specific time or we'll, you know, we just need yeah. to be able to say everybody who wants to get one, get your order in by then. So that is happening and I'm excited because basically there are a lot of people who have run across... I mean, I just wish it were possible for people to get them whenever they wanted to, but the problem is... You know, there we just need a critical mass, and then it doesn't make sense to make a lot more because the kits are you know really high quality, but in a, in such a low quantity that they're still expensive. And so, you know, neither he nor I want to just like sit on inventory of right. unrequested kits. But it is it it's really cool to 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 see them going. And in fact, some people wrote and said, "Well, what could I do with one?" So I put up a new page in, in my PDP eight area. 
that answers that question. What can you do with a PDP-8 today? And what's neat is that it achieved such a critical mass back in its day that when the Internet happened, people who were collectors and archivists put all of their material on the net. So the OS is there and and running and Pascal and Focal and Fortran 2 and 4 and Basic and all the editors and utilities, all of that stuff is still available. So, I mean, you can actually play with this just like we did back in the in the late 60s and early 70s. And, so. and Steve has published the source code for Deep Thought. For P- yep. He's actually done an open source program, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> for BDP-8. For BDP-8 assembler. <laughs> but what the hell, you know? If you want to learn how to write assembly, look at every line has a comment, at least one line, many lines for most most of them. I mean, talk about beautiful code. You could Just looking at this would be an education. Yeah, well, I, I created it for that reason. So, yeah. you know, to, to, to help people to, awesome. who wanted to mess around with it. So let's get, we, we're going to do questions and answers today. We've got 10 great questions yep. and uh, answers from Steve, questions from you. And we're going to do those in just a bit. But uh, before we, as always, before we get too deep into the weeds there, I thought it'd be good to check in and see what security news you have. Have some. Um, uh, not too much this week. Um, I did want to touch base with, we've talked a couple times about some of the ridiculous RIAA lawsuits against Ugh. individuals. Yeah. You know, there was a there was a a college student who got fined eight hundred and fifty thousand dollars or something, which was really ridiculous. But even more was there was like a a mom in Minnesota who's a mother of four who was using Kazaa, and without her knowledge, there were twenty four song tracks that her system had on it. Somehow, I mean, it really looks from all evidence, like it was completely inadvertent. And, of course, the RIAA just dropped on her with both feet, used the the letter of the copyright law, and a jury uh, last week awarded damages to the RIAA. That is that this mom had to pay of $1.92 million. Now... There's a, a provision that a judge has when a jury completely goes off the rails like this, where the judge can just say, okay, well, thank you for your opinion, you strange set of 12 people, but, you know, that's just ridiculous. Yeah. So he reduced it by his own, his own declaration. Yeah. To $54,000. Which is still a lot of money. Well, well I mean, for... For arguably, I mean, maybe this wasn't even a crime. I mean, she had them on her computer. She was using file sharing software. So there's, you know, some responsibility. But also, there's no, there's no evidence of even of any damages. No proof that anyone actually got these from her machine, as I understand it. So um, they can't prove that. That's the irony of it. Right. And so... um, then the RIAA offered it they came back after the judge reduced this judgment from 1.92 million dollars down to 54k the RIA came back and said well we'll settle for 25,000 if you will ask the judge uh, judge Davis to vacate his decision to reduce the penalty 
So, I mean, here's the RIAA playing games saying, we'll settle for 25000 but we want to be able to say that this case was decided and the, the, the judgment was against you in the amount of $1.92 million so we can threaten the rest of the, the world, the rest of the country, certainly, with, with this onus. Uh, and, and happily... These guys are so blatant. They don't even it, make an attempt to hide their greed and their it's really just awful yeah. and so uh jamie is, is 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 the mom jamie thomas rassett uh said no um i'm not going to accept your settlement so she's and and she's still saying i didn't do anything wrong i don't know how those songs got on my machine i'm not a music pirate and you know the, the thing that really does annoy me leo is there are certainly really egregious music thieves operating on the net go go get one of them not some mother of four in minnesota who was probably innocent of this so steve, steve i know you're uh, upset about this i don't know if it's caused your nose to bleed but i think you is your left nostril bleeding a little bit there what <laughs> i mean your right your right nostril are you kidding or your left nostril yeah it, it seems like it might be no okay no, they're telling weird. me on the ch- on the chat it maybe there is a there's a <laughs> There's a rust-colored streak on your mustache, then. I don't know what it is. <laughs> it could be an artifact of the uh, of the video. I'm going to edit that out, nothing obviously. Drip, nothing dripping off the ceiling on me. Okay. So. <laughs> we have a doctor. We have a doctor in the audience, and so I just thought, you know, she's, she's concerned about your health. So <laughs> Maybe I'm getting so upset that I've blown a blood Why? vessel Those somewhere. are I.A. losers! <laughs> Anyway, you know, I agree with you. I, I think it's uh, it, it, it's just unconscionable. Now, I'm not sure how innocent Jamie is, Jamie Thomas, but um, as you point out, you can't prove intent here. And I know that that's a key part of law uh, in general is intent, right? Yeah. And you just can't prove it. Yeah. I, I, uh, it just it really seems like a an abuse of power. I'm I'm pleased the judge, you know, just was reeled by this one point nine two million dollar judgment. And and that was based on a in a, a, a fixed dollar amount per song yeah. is the way the RIA was going after this. Well it's it's let's be honest or fair, it's the copyright law as well. Yeah. So it's it the law gives them the right to ask for fixed damages. Uh, of course this law was written in effect by the recording industry, the DMCA and so forth. But yeah. you know, that's what they're going for. They have a set amount that they can ask for and they did. Yes, they did. Um we have a, a mysterious new and troubling problem for IE. Uh-uh. I mean when Again? don't we? Um th- this one uh a uh Jorge Luis Alvarez Medina um just demonstrated this at the Black Hat conference in in DC. Um, the title of his paper, which he presented, which is available online if anyone is curious, is Internet Explorer Turns Your Personal Computer into a Public File Server. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, maybe you want that. I don't know. It's yeah. uh, not good. No. Um, it turns out that this is actually not a the, the result of a vulnerability but a clever interaction of properly functioning 
features, which Microsoft certainly did not intend. Microsoft has acknowledged this report. Um, Jorge has not released all the details, but he's because he's waiting for Microsoft to fix this somehow. But it's a it's a sort of a blended collection of behaviors, which he's just sort of talks about without getting into any specifics at all involving the way zones interact with some with some protocols that IE makes available the the bottom line is that there is a way which he has shown for any website to present or or web page meaning email also to if you're using IE as the viewer for your email we've talked about how that happens where you the user clicks on a link the the result of clicking on the link is that a file sharing connection a so-called smb you know server message blocks an smb connection is established from your computer to a a bad remote site and that over that connection the remote site has then full access to your file system it's literally it's it's just like what originally caused me to create shields up and um and and tell people that their their server ports were open and that they were you know they were sharing their c drive with the entire world this here we are in 2010 and this is a vulnerability in ie certainly microsoft will look into it they'll come up with a workaround of some sort. He's not going to disclose details until they've done so, after which he'll say, okay, now that it's been fixed, here's how you do it. So anyway, just, you know, another little <laughs> blip on our IE radar. Just, and we do, just wanted you thought it couldn't get any worse. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and we do have a question uh, in our Q&A about uh, the, someone who had trouble c- completely getting away from IE that I want to talk about a little bit. Okay. And then the, o- the only other real bit of security news is that for anyone still using real player and i don't know anyone who still is i mean i stopped using it because it was a catastrophe you know back when you were still seeing lots of dot rm you know real media files on the net the good news is it's pretty much faded out but you probably know if you are a user of real player maybe you know there's like your corporation only publishes things for internal consumption who knows what um but there is a security update and anyone who's knows they're using real player and still using real player ought to go to real and update themselves the rest of us anyone who has it installed and and thinks hey you know i Forgot I installed that a couple of years ago and I haven't used it. Just get rid of it. Piece of you junk. probably yeah. probably don't need it. Yeah, just you know, I mean, it was a real exploitive. Unfortunately, you know, it's, it's what's sad is that there's still sites I go to them all the time uh, that require real player to play back audio. I guess they just never updated it or whatever. Wow. And it's just uh, you know, I went to a site the other day that gave you two ways you could listen to a, a uh, audio. One was real, and the other was Windows Media. And I thought, yeah. you guys never heard of MP3, huh? Oh, I get it. Yeah, wake yeah. up. Mm. So in Arata, um, I wanted to just acknowledge to our listeners that I have heard everyone's request for the LockNote security analysis. LockNote is that cool little notepad that I talked about 
some many weeks ago, and I said because it was the the source had been posted over on SourceForge that I wanted to check it out to make sure that they were doing things the right way. I have no doubt that they are. I believe they are, but since the source is there, it makes and since there's no statement from them about how they are processing the password. Remember that we just talked recently about um, a really bad use of a password um, where you you, um, you you gave the password. Remember, it was a, it was a family of password-based AES-256 encrypted thumb drives, but the way they implemented it, once you gave the password then the same key was always being used to decrypt the data. So it was completely bogus. I mean, it, it meant that it was trivial to bypass this. That's the kind of stupid mistake you just want to make sure no one's making. So um, I have seen um, a bunch of reminders from our listeners. Hey, Steve, you know, whatever happened about telling us about LockNote? Um, I've got the source. I I tried to get it get into it for this week um but uh i just didn't have time so next week for sure i will be able to say yes definitively i've looked at the way Locknote is handling the password i'll be able to explain exactly what it does and give people uh, the warm and fuzzies that they're looking for because it's a cool little it's a cool little app yeah um i have your notes in front of me well, we have a little iPad discussion. Well, let's hold off on that for a second, okay? Yeah. And Because uh, yeah. I want to do a commercial. And then, yes, yeah, Steve, I'm actually very glad to hear, has some thoughts about the iPad that no one, despite all the uh, in- incessant chewing over the iPad we've done over the last five days, that no one has mentioned. I've listened to everything that's been out on the Twit Network, Leo, and there are just a couple things that I wanted to add. And yeah, and, and you know, I get email all the time from people who say, hey, you never thought of this, never thought of this. And one of the things that strikes me about the iPad is... It's it's like that elephant uh, that the, the uh, seven blind uh, beggars were, were the old touching. fable, right? Depending on what what part of it you see, you you describe something entirely different. Which to me bodes well for it as a product because there are so many niches it can fill. You know, I have one use, can, you know, case for it for myself, but I think I'm hearing many others as well. But before we do that, my friends, let me talk a little bit about the fr- folks that go to assist. This is this is like the perfect software for people who listen to this show go to assist express i started using go to assist express at the on the actually was the full big boy go to assist on the screensavers many years ago we used it uh sporadically for calls so somebody would call we would say all right well we're going to file up fire up go to assist and we're going to help you on the air well they've really tuned and tweaked and prodded and poked and refined this program and now they offer it as go to Assist Express, and Express is the right word because it couldn't be faster and easier. It is the way, if you're in IT or, or support for software, the way to provide instant support to your customers remotely. They, their slogan is support smarter, and it really is true. You could try it free right now by going to go to assist.com slash security. Uh, you'll see, of course, it uses that underlying Citrix remote access. They're so famous for me. It's just the best. 128-bit SSL encrypted. They've got great support for you, 24-7 tech support for you. But it's also easy for your customers. They don't have to have anything installed. You can email them a link. You can be on chat with them uh, saying, oh, look, you know, you, let me help you with this problem. I, you can get day passes, by the way, which I've done for my family. 
But the beauty of this is for the pro, you can have eight sessions at the same time. So you're installing on one. You can move to the next. The next very efficient. It gives you a, an assay of what's on the computer, what operating system, what security software, what other software running in the background. You can transfer fixes from your computer to theirs by drag and drop. You can have unattended supports. They don't even have to be there. It goes on and on. This is such a great program. Works on both PCs and Macs. Macs can support PCs. PCs can support Macs. PC to PC, Mac to Mac. Um, you just got to try this. 30 days free right now. Go to, go to assist.com slash security. G-O-T-O assist.com slash security. And unlimited 30-day use. Now is the time to try it. <laughs> if you've got a family member or a friend or a customer or a client who's having trouble, you're going to be a support hero to them. They'll be amazed. My mom just sits and watches while I fix her computer. And she loves it. Go to assist.com slash security. We love them. We thank Citrix so much for their support of security now. So let's talk about iPad. Now, you, you and I both use the Kindle. Yes. And I, in fact, uh, I have to say, Leo, I was thinking about this because I knew we were going to talk about this. There is no other single piece of technology that I use more wow. or even as much as the Kindle. Wow. That's really true. I mean, it is, it is, when I leave the house, I have it with me, and I spend hours a day reading stuff, mostly periodicals, with the Kindle. Um, David Walker, who is the, um, the ex-head uh, uh, comptroller, uh, and he was running the General Accountability Office, uh, recently, he's got a new book out called Comeback America, talking about, you know, getting our fiscal house in shape. And I ran across uh, a mention of him relative to um, the um, the U.S. budget that just came out recently. And so I grabbed that book. But uh, and so I'm going to read that. But it'll be the first book I've read in a long time. Mostly I use it for periodicals, for which I think it is absolutely perfect. See, I would disagree. I think that uh, while I agree with you, I love the Kindle and I do the same as you. I carry it everywhere. I, I don't find it perfect. It's just the best that I could find so far. And where it really lacks to me, it's great for reading linear things. But I like to jump around. Like when I'm reading a newspaper, I like to scan the front page and then go to something and go to something. And the Kindle does not make that easy. Well, I agree. It it does require a different approach. Now, Paul and I are apparently, Paul Therott and I are in sync with this. He said he's been reading the New York Times on his Kindle, and he loves the experience. Hmm. Um, I'm the same way. Um, I subscribe to the New York Times, the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal. Wow. And you do have to get used to sort of this tree-structured approach. And I know what you mean, the idea of like glancing at an actual front page where you can see it all laid out and very quickly, you know, scan visually looking for topics that seem interesting and then presumably tap on them that, that, and that'll zoom you into that and, and so forth. So it's certainly the case that, that the, the limitations of the Kindle's e-ink screen have forced a design compromise on the reading experience that takes you, you know, from the way you used to do it to the Kindle approach. For me, the, the trade-off is that it is very lightweight and easy to hold. The battery life is so long that you really, it's not even a factor. It's long enough that that sort of leaves the equation completely. So, I mean, I, I will, 
I will, I've notified Apple. I want to be notified as soon as the iPad is available. My, one of the things that I wanted to say was that, that for $4.99, it, it's, it's an unbelievable value. And, and I don't think that Jobs and Apple want anyone to buy that one because they're making much more money on the 32 gig and the 64 gig at 599 and 699 than they are at 499. I mean, a Palm Pilot not that long ago yeah. was more than 499. Right, right. And it doesn't hold a candle to this thing. Right. So, no, I so, was impressed by that price point too. Although I am going to buy the 499 and I think many people will. Oh, I am too. I see I'm going to buy it cuz I don't think I'm going to use it. You're uh, you're holding off for the the one month later 3G version. No, no, no. I don't think this answers a problem that I have. I see. So you think you're going back to the Kindle after you try it? Yeah. I mean, I have to have it because from everything I've heard, and I've, I'm, you know, I haven't held it, but I've listened to Andy, I've listened to you, that there's this, you know, that it is a transformational thing. And the, the, the thing that I think it may have for me is uh, being an instant on web browser when I'm in a high in in a in a Wi-Fi area, when I'm at Starbucks or in various other places I hang out that have Wi-Fi, even in my home, you know, like you know, watching television, I'll see you know something will pop into my mind, and it would be really nice to be able to really quickly jump on the web and type something in and and find something, and and I think you know I think it's it's a feasible. I mean, it's. I'm sure it's going to be a very practicable um, web browser. Yeah. Um, and then there are other things. Um, now, I do. This whole issue of Flash is an interesting controversy. What what most people think of when they talk about Flash seems to be video, which is not what my focus has been on at all. Um, what's interesting about Flash is that it is a powerful interpreter. And it bypasses the iTunes store. The reason Apple doesn't want Flash on their devices is that you can write applications in Flash, mm-hmm. which are, you know, fully functional, useful applications. And just serve them up as a web page. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, serve them up as a Flash application. And, you know, Jobs and Company doesn't get money for your well, purchasing the little button. To be fair, they've encouraged people, in fact, that was the original plan for the iPhone, to write web applications, and that's how Google's gotten around the Google Voice blocking. You don't right. need Flash to do that. You need JavaScript, you need CSS, you need you know all of the tools that Apple has allowed. I think that you hit the nail on the head. This is a security show that it is a powerful interpreter. That's why Flash is a security problem. That could be one reason. And of course, it's one company that owns it, and that could be another reason. Yeah, um, I think you can do a, uh, everything that you're talking about without Flash. Well, except there are websites that are written in Flash. Well, of course there are, but I think what, what Jobs is saying is let's get rid of those. Let's let's move <laughs> on. Well, so I do I do take issue with him saying you ha- are holding the internet in your hand and you can surf anywhere you want. And you to. don't have Flash, right? No, you're right. You don't have Flash. Then there are sites. He should have addressed this. He should have just said, "We have decided not to put Flash on our phones and now on the iPad because." Right. And he has so a credible he, story to tell. He shouldn't yes, he lie does. and say the web in your finger in your hands because it isn't. 
right? It's missing. It, yeah. And, you know, certainly it'll put some pressure on sites that were written in Flash somehow not to be written That's in Flash. That's already done because so many f- smartphones don't support Flash. Android uh-huh. doesn't really. So, in effect, if you want to support mobile computing, if you're Hulu, for instance, you're going to move on. And right. the good news is there's an alternative. In fact, YouTube now has a beta program where everything is done in H.264 and HTML5. It works great. And it works fine on the iPhone and the Android phones. And that's all you need. In fact, we have a streaming an HTML version uh, of our uh, video in prototype that streams uh, using H.264 and has no Flash. Because in the long run, you know, we're dependent, heavily dependent on Flash if you want to watch well, And you're live. probably aware, I'm sure you're aware, of the the as yet unsettled question of html5 at support for h.264 versus um the og format theora yeah yeah because of patent issues i mean the 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 mpla does i mean you know h.264 is patent encumbered yep yep there's no doubt about it and so organizations like mozilla are saying you know we we don't know how do we support that right no and 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 i'm with that and i'm sure that'll get resolved you know Apple does so many closed things. I mean, so much of what Apple does is highly proprietary and closed. This is one case where I think maybe for maybe for proprietary and business reasons, there was, but but for whatever reason, they're supporting open technologies over a proprietary technology. And I just think that they ought to be applauded for that. It might it's certainly a bad business decision in some ways. Maybe they're doing it for other business reasons. Well, and, and I really I love the idea of them putting pressure on the on the on the serving side of the industry yeah. to move video to HTML5. That's all it has to is some one big player. Microsoft could have done it but did not. Mozilla yep. could have done it but did not. All it takes is one player, one of the big 3 to do it. And fortunately, Google has decided that they're going to right. uh do H.264, which is the far better codec to use um over AUG. That's so, what YouTube is using, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, the other thing is there was a lot of uh, issue about camera, you know, the lack right. of a camera on the iPad. And my feeling is that it's an example of a decision they had to make just for cost reasons. While it, if you think about it, the things that are on the iPad, which is to say not much, get 100% utilization that is, you know, the touch screen, the screen, the processor, the battery, you know, what is there is absolutely utilized fully. Whereas anything else they were to add would would always represent a fixed cost for every single device that they produced, but lots of people wouldn't be using it. So I also think of that as the way they've sort of got this add-on accessorized deal where, you know, if you want the USB connectors, you got to get an extra gizmo to plug that in. If you want to import video, then you've got another little add-on. You know, what they did was, again, they they minimized what the base product does to completely minimize their fixed cost. And then they've accessorized this so that you know those things that people do want to add they can plug into the docking connector you know where they're really going to make you know where where they're going to need those functions and those are also other little profit centers for apple so yeah, yeah. anyway i'm i'm stoked about it i'm glad it exists um i can't wait to get my hands on it maybe i'll use it i think i probably will use it as my web browser um and I'd, i'll have to wait and see 
how I feel about it as an ebook reader. I mean, the I love the Kindle. the 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 idea that the the battery life is as long as it is does make a difference to me. Um, but maybe if the experience with the iPad is good enough, you know, enough better, then you know, I'll I'll switch to it. I just don't know. Yeah, we won't know till we get it and spend hours trying to read on. it. And I have to say, this idea that Kindle has opened their device up to other apps. It's I, like, I, Amazon, what? it's really interesting because Amazon clearly sees the iPad as a shot across their bow. And now there's this big war going on. You heard the Macmillan thing. They pulled yep. all the Macmillan books off because Macmillan yep. wanted iPad-style pricing on Amazon. Amazon said, no! And uh, they, and then they flip-flopped the royalties. It was 70-30. Now it's 30-70 in favor of the, of the publisher. And now this, they've offered an SDK so you can write, but you're right, you can write apps on the Kindle? What are you going to do? I mean... <laughs> The the problem is, again, I, I think this is nutso, um, unless, I just don't know what, what you're going to do. I mean, that screen is so limited that, you know, it's not like an iPad at all. You can't animate things. You can't have little things walk around. I mean, it's, and the moment you do anything, your battery life just goes to hell. Right. I mean, you know, we know that listening to music on the Kindle drains it in a matter of an hour. Well, I mean, and, and just, the irony is, of course, to all the people wanting multitasking, there's no multitasking on the Kindle either. I mean, it barely does single task. Talk, talk about a limited platform, but yeah, maybe, maybe somebody I, will do something interesting. I, I Maybe like crossword puzzles or something not very animated. I mean, it, it can't be with that kind of screen technology. We'll see. I just, that to me, it seems really strange. It's like, okay, well, good luck with that. Good luck with that. So, yeah. Uh, We'll talk in two months. Oh, can't wait. We'll talk I in mean, two months. it looks just like a spectacular little toy. Well, it's a good toy. A toy is a good word. In fact, maybe that's the word we should start using because people keep comparing it to computers. It's not a netbook. It's a toy. But it's... And the, the, the other thing people talk about is how many different devices they're having to carry. And that they look at it in terms of a consolidation. The problem is my BlackBerry... For what the BlackBerry does, it does it perfectly. You know, the fact that I get a little trickle, I get email trickling in and, and instant messaging from some friends trickling in. You know, I mean, what it is, it is perfect for that. The I believe the Kindle for what it is, is perfect for that. I've got, you know, my ultimate laptop is this little, the Lenovo X200S. It, what it is, it is perfect for that. And so I do have a a collection of individual devices, each perfectly optimized for for the way I use them. And I've given up on the idea that one single thing is going to replace them all. I just, it's just not going to happen. So I may add another, you know, I'll add an iPad and so I'll have a quick web browsing gizmo and maybe something to play with puzzles and things. I mean, it just sounds like it's a beautiful piece of equipment. Well, exactly. I mean, think about crossword puzzles on it. Uh, I could see you bringing it you're bringing the Kindle to the uh, Starbucks. This is the, this is the perfect Starbucks computer, don't you think? Yeah, I mean that's, and I'm not. I don't care about 3G because, or or, or a lot of extra memory because, um, how much memory is on our Kindles? Hard, exactly, hard exactly. Any. Sixteen gig is. It's I mean, a lot I'm not of memory. Not, and what I did want to mention also, you were a little annoyed by the by the non HD form factor. And and I think that my take on that is having you know messed around with video a lot. Ten twenty four pixels of horizontal resolution is 
really a lot for video. Okay. And yeah, so I've been kind of more convinced. Andy kind of convinced me on Mac Break Weekly. It can't do. It can't be ideal for both. Exactly, and that's just it. Is you really do need a more square, right. a more square aspect ratio for many other things, and it's only HD where they. And remember that you know it was only recently that that cinematographers figured out that wide was better because it was more like the way we see rather than you know square, which is what t- televisions had always been. Historic. It'll be fine so. for. A lot of things. And I, you know, we're going to do a Twit application. Uh, we're actually, uh, Houdini 7, who writes our Twit application for the iPhone, is already working on one for the iPad that will, uh, in effect, have multitasking. You'll have video and chat. It's going to be a great way to watch Twit live. I just you know, have a lot of ways that you can use it. I noticed one of the strangest things, too, on the screen during the Apple presentation was that their pixels were not square on the screen. Whenever they showed the iPad oriented in landscape mode it looked really wide but when they rotated it and showed it in portrait mode it looked really squatty and almost square and it was like it was just struck me as really strange that no one would like fix that i didn't notice that uh when i held it i think one thing about this you know the fat nano was like this too when you saw pictures of it it was like this is ugly what is this and if i look at pictures of the ipad i go that i can see why people would go Gee, that's not very appealing. When you hold it, there is a different experience. I don't know if it has square pixels or not, but I would expect it would. Oh, no, no. I think, the, no, it was the projection screen. It was a projection. Okay. That's what I meant. Yeah. Was, yeah. was it, you know, when it was big up on screen, right. whenever it was laying on its side, it seemed really long and stretched out. And it's right. like to act, sort of, and it accentuated that aspect of it sort of unfairly. Right. Because then when you turned it upwards, it was sort of squatty and more square. And so it's like, okay, that's, you know, that's a little interesting bit of uh, showmanship there yeah. on Apple's part. Yeah. Well, so. they, you know, they've never released that video tap for the iPhone, and I presume they use the same one for the uh, iPad that lets them put it on the screen. No one knows how they do it. It's magic. <laughs> and uh, apparently it's not perfect. <laughs> or it's probably not in the production models. It's probably just in... Maybe in that's a, it. Maybe they build a video out into a, yeah. into, into a one, one Steve edition, the Steve edition with the video. I hey. did have a, uh, a fun Spinrite story that I wanted to share. Um, Mark Jones is a listener and wrote to us, and he said, his subject was, should I be happy that I have a Spinrite story? No, that's a good point. He said, I'm a loyal listener and Spinrite owner. I finally have a Spinrite story. My neighbor was having trouble with a Vista computer um, and took it to have it serviced at a national chain. I'm not sure they'd want me to give out the name, but it rhymes with Meek Pod. Meek Pod, Meek Pod, Meek Pod. Oh, I, yeah, I, yeah, them. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, we know that that's the geek squad. Yeah. Oh, so Mark didn't away. say that I did. Uh, they replaced her hard drive, saying the old one was defective and offering as proof of of its failure western digital's diagnostics uh failure during a complete scan they installed a new disk and convinced her to upgrade to windows 7 as a clean install she commented to me her neighbor that she was happy i had told her about using an external disk for backup she was only going to lose about a month of pictures and other files even though even that was a problem for her the broken drive is a sata drive my desktop has external SATA connections, so I put the drive on and ran Spinrite. By morning, 
it announced that errors had been repaired. You can guess the rest. The drive is perfectly fixed, and I moved all of her files off of it. She lost nothing. Way to go, Spinrite. That's great. Um, in addition her win- to her Windows 7 install, she was sold antivirus and anti-spyware software. I suggested that before purchasing such items in the future, she should talk to me. <laughs> she said, and Mark says, keep up the great work. Thanks to you and Leo. Well, I hope he recommends some antivirus, anti-spyware software. Well, I'm sure he's probably thinking of Microsoft Security Essentials, right. which is what you know, I'm telling everyone. The, Just the use the that. Freebie, yeah. Problem solved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We are um, going to uh, go into our questions and answers in just a second. Ten great questions, ten great answers. But before we do that, I do want to mention our friends at Audible.com who do those great audio books that I live on. I've got them on my iPhone. I'll be putting them on the iPad, you can bet. <laughs> I, I actually haven't heard that it works with the iPad, but I presume since it's a, basically a, an iPod, among other things, that it, they'll work fine. Audible books do, of course, work on uh, all iPods, iPhones, everything made by Apple, everything made by Microsoft, everything made by Amazon, uh, the iRiver, the Sansas, uh, Stan- all all of the uh, almost all the players. You can look at their uh, device center to find out if it works on your device. The one device that not uh, th- that doesn't work on everyone is uh, the, is phones. Does work on most Blackberries. Does not yet work on my Nexus One, but that's just a matter of time. However, if you've got one of the devices it plays on or you're willing to listen on your computer, there's no better way to get some reading done than with audible.com. I love Audible. If you go there right now, audiblepodcast.com slash security now, audiblepodcast.com slash security now, you could pick up a book for free, get a sense of what it would be like to listen to your books instead of reading them. There's just something about it. Uh, for one thing, I, I mean, even when I could be picking up a book, I often listen because audiobooks just seem to come alive in my mind. But, you know, there's times when you can't hold a book, like the car, the gym, working in the kitchen, doing some gardening. All those times when you would uh, be listening to uh, us, for instance, you could be listening to great literature or sci-fi or self-help. Audiblepodcast.com slash security. Now, I was... Uh, uh, this summer, uh, my Henry and I went to, uh, on a trip to Asia, and one of the places we stopped, and I really wanted Henry to see this, was Nagasaki. And we went to the Atomic Bomb Museum, which is uh, heart-wrenching, just heart-wrenching. But I wanted Henry to see that, and I think it really moved him. Um, it's something uh, not to be forgotten in this era of atomic weapons. And I noticed on Audible a great book, which I am going to give to Henry, that will tie into that experience. It's called The Last Train from Hiroshima, The Survivors Look Back. It is a book of um, first-person narratives of people who survived the atomic bombing in uh, Hiroshima. And I tell you, that was the thing that was most powerful at Nagasaki, was hearing and seeing these people's experience. It's, it's, It's so dramatic, so powerful, and so tragic. I just thought this might be a great book for uh, kids, uh, Henry's age, teenagers who don't remember, don't know about that. This is something we can never forget, the power of the atomic bomb and the the devastation it can cause. So I thought this might be a good book for him. It's one of the things about Audible. It's not just, you know, entertainment. There are books for teenagers, for young children, uh, young adults, bestsellers. Uh, it's, It's educational, it's entertaining, it's informative. And sometimes it can be a very dramatic experience. In fact, often it is. I want you to give it a try. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash security now. 
Get a free book. You can cancel it any time the book is yours to keep. I think you're going to like it. We thank them for their support of Security Now and all of the shows here on the Twit Network. All right, Steve Gibson, I have questions for you if you have answers. Let's do it. All right, he's starting with question number one. This is from Van A. Aish here in Laredo, Texas, he says. I've been a listener of Security uh, Now for a year or more. Love your show. I look forward to every issue. My question is regarding switching to Firefox. I have attempted. I have attempted to switch from IE to Firefox. However, the company I work for uses a couple of applications that are built on .NET. That's the Microsoft uh, programming technology that does, in fact, use the Internet. I guess explore. When I attempt to run them in Firefox, they don't work. Is there any way for me to run .NET applications in Firefox? It's the only reason I can't leave IE behind. What do you think, Steve? Well, there was for a while a .NET uh, framework assistant that was available for Firefox. And we talked about it some time ago that there was a known security vulnerability in it. And Firefox, uh, the Mozilla folks, disabled the use of the framework assistant until Microsoft got it fixed. I looked around for it and its compatible version under the current 3.5 and was unable to find it anywhere. Hmm. So I thought, okay, well, you know, maybe Microsoft didn't make it available under 3.5 or, uh, you know, I don't know. But this gave me a, 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 a essentially a, an opportunity to to explain to Van that it's certainly the case that it's likely not possible to completely leave IE behind. Um, I'm still using IE when I manually go to Microsoft site to to check for Windows updates because I like to do the the custom version, not the express. I want to look through them. You know, there are some things that I just do not want added to my system, which Microsoft keeps trying to push on me. And so it's like, ah, no thanks. So I've, you know, I've got some of those, those declined and hidden, so I'm not being bothered about them all the time. So unfortunately, IE is, is tightly enough integrated into Windows that you can't get rid of it all the time. So I just sort of wanted to suggest that, that, the goal should not be to absolutely positively never need it. And specifically, for example, if there are in-house applications running on .NET that need IE, well, they're not a problem. I mean, they're not maliciously created and, and they're not exposing you to danger. So the idea would be feel completely comfortable with using IE to visit Microsoft um, when you need to, or to use your corporate, um, you know, internal .NET applications, that doesn't represent a problem. Just stay in the habit of choosing Firefox when you're doing your normal web surfing. And so it's really, you really don't have to absolutely never use IE. You just have to only use it when you have no choice. A number of people in the chat room are saying, oh, yeah, there's an IE tab extension for Firefox. But that's just, that's not solid. That's that's saying use IE in a tab in Firefox. And it's, of course, uh, exactly. No, that, yes. If you want to you just open the window, IE window, too. I mean, you don't need, <laughs> I guess it means you don't have to leave Firefox for whatever that means. Yeah. But, and see, I would also decline that on just on the grounds of wanting to keep Firefox as as right. simple as possible. And who knows what new exploit will come up for, you know, 
the problem of running the IE tab in Firefox. You might have it running, and right. you know, it's just you're just asking for more trouble. I think. Let's go to Uppsala, Sweden, for our next uh, question. He commends everyone to virtualize. That's Hans in Uppsala. I've been following securely security now as much as I've been able to for the past month or two. I think it's a great show, and I'm recommending it to as many friends as possible. I do have a comment on the subject of having a separate banking computer. We've talked about that quite a bit, actually. Uh, or, say, um, uh, well, he says having a separate computer or, say, a dual boot system is safe and all, but it can be a hassle to achieve. That's for sure true. And uh, or incur a high cost to achieve the best security level. I would suggest that most people can make do with a dedicated virtual machine for banking. It's far cheaper than an extra computer and much easier and less annoying than a dual boot system. Use VirtualBox. Uh, he says Microsoft's uh, virtualization system. Actually, uh, VirtualBox is from Sun and free. Uh, or the VMware Player Server Workstation. That's free. Microsoft has a free version of uh, Virtual PC as well. He says, I use VMware Workstation quite a lot and uh, will never set up a dual boot system again unless I absolutely have to. Now, I think I've asked you that, Steve. What, is virtualization a adequate solution? Thus, this question. Yes. Um, no, no, there was an, there was originally a big flurry about the security benefits of virtualization and what followed not long after was a bunch of smart people punching holes in not only those, not, not, not only in those virtual machines, but in those concepts and theories. The, in this case, it is, it's careful to think about the the attack problem that is running a banking instance of the operating system in a VM could potentially protect you from, from stuff getting into that machine, into that virtual machine. But that's really not the threat model. What you want is to prevent anything from being able to play games with your session that you've established between that virtual machine and the bank. And the problem is the virtual machine is running inside of your real machine. And it's your real machine that could have some malware installed, for example, sitting monitoring all the packets that go in and out of the physical adapter. So even though you've, you've created a virtual container and built a moat around it so that nothing can get to it, well, the data still has to cross out through your real physical computer, which could be under the influence of some malware, and thus you lose that protection. So so I, I just, this was a great question because we touched on it before, but I just wanted to, to you know, accent this a little bit and make sure that people understood that, that, that the idea of of creating a little protected zone which where the data then crosses a non protected zone well that's you know you've we've lost the value of our protection, not all of it, but a critical aspect of it and so for example, um a perfect instance would be that a if there was a hack which took advantage of the of the s s l t l s renegotiation failure. That's exactly where it could insert it. That's a man-in-the-middle attack 
that allows other things to stick themselves on the front of your connection, which is exactly what you want to avoid in a banking scenario. So, so that kind of, you know, essentially your own external machine would be the man in the middle that would be attacking the communications coming out from the virtual machine and um, making that really an unsafe solution. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah. Francois Pomainville, or Pomainville in Montreal suggests a Linux boot CD might be dangerous. We've talked about that as an alternative. He says, power down before booting. Something you forgot? First, love the show. Listening to it from the beginning keeps my paranoia alive and well. Uh, on a previous show, you told people, actually, I think it was me, I don't think you said it, to boot from a live Linux CD so that you're in a fixed environment. But if you had a virus in Windows that is memory resident, meaning that it'll keep running even after a reboot, wouldn't that be a problem? I'd recommend that the computer is powered down during uh, 30 seconds before booting from that live Linux CD. Does that make sense? Is there something that can survive a reboot? It's a good question. Um, I, I tried to think of some way that something could stay around when you're changing, assuming you're on Windows normally and you're changing to Linux. I mean, even, even a... Um, a boot sector virus that installs itself on the first track that wouldn't work because you're not touching it right it's very os it's very os dependent right. and so um i can't see a benefit to to powering down um, um it's conceivable you could have a bios virus but that powering down wouldn't help in that case and neither would I mean nothing would help nothing. you at that point. If you, you know, that screwed. You've yeah. got something really deep into your machine. Yeah. So, so I I don't see a benefit. I think that you know maybe pressing the red reset button. Of course, computers increasingly uh, lack actual physical reset buttons because that because that sort of does a, a a hardware reset. But that's you know I, again I I can't see any benefit to powering off the machine and i dislike power cycling things because they that tends to break them too so yeah i i i think that just rebooting a um a, a linux cd is enough yeah <laughs> yeah i had enough trouble with that uh moving on to listener a question for a listener needing anonymity so we won't say her or his name in michigan though it's a pretty big state. Makes a good point about broken SSL renegotiation. He says, I was listening to Let's Build a Computer, which was last week. Can't wait for the rest, by the way, on my way to work. I heard you and Leo discuss what happens when one side of the connection has SSL renegotiation disabled. Uh, as in the case of Apple's recent update to its uh, broken SSL TLS. In the discussion that followed, you described the unlikely instance of SSL sessions that last a month, month or more. Uh, which is correct. However, where this issue also arises in more practical terms is with client certificate authentication, which is a use case uh, which you touched on when you previously discussed session renegotiation. You might have forgotten to mention it this time. Yep. At least with Apache, the behavior of client certificate authentication depends on whether you apply the directive on a per-server or per-directory context. In the per-server context, you have to supply a valid client certificate to establish the SSL connection to the server. In a per-directory context, you establish a non-client certificate authenticated connection first. Once you request a directory requiring certification, 
Apache forces a session renegotiation before giving the client the data. So you start with an insecure connection, try to go to that directory. Apache says, no, wait a minute, it's secure. Let's renegotiate so that we can have a secure connection. He gives a link to the Apache docs for this. In the case where Apache is compiled with open SSL 0.9.81, thus breaking session renegotiation, client certificate authentication in a per-directory context no longer works. Clients are unable to access the directory protected by client certificate authentication. Thanks for the extremely informative podcast. Keep up with the good work. Don't say my name on the air because my position in the industry is sensitive. Obviously, this is somebody who deals with this kind of thing because that's a very deep uh, understanding of what's going on. Is he right? Yes. Um, I And when we originally talked about renegotiation, I remembered this as an instance where renegotiation could occur. So let right. me sort of explain it sort of more in 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 common terms. The idea is that it is, for, first of all, we're talking about client certificate, meaning that not the server certificate where we're authenticating the certificate, but where the client has a certificate to prove its authentication. Right. So it's a nice way of, of establishing very good security on a site. So, for example, you might have a, 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 public, a public site like Google where any random person anonymously is able to connect, just like we all do when we bring up Google's homepage. But Google employees might have a special certificate installed on their laptops, for example, which allows them to get access to specific directories on the Google domain that nobody else, no matter what they try, who lacks that client side certificate can access. So the mechanism for this does require renegotiation because the because so the way so the sequence would be an an individual connects over SSL, you know, TLS, gets a secure connection to Google's domain. Now what's significant about that is that remember that the that this connection is established before we before any data flows that is before the request for a page so the server doesn't know what page that is to say for example what directory the connecting client wants to visit so a normal a normal non um, authenticated ssl connection is established that is where the ser the server is authenticated with a server certificate but the client isn't because it could be just you or me Leo wanting to hook up to Google with with https right so so that secure tunnel has to be established then the request for a specific page is sent through the established ssl connection if the server sees that that's a protected directory then it has to say, oh, only authenticated clients are able to access that directory. So it then issues a renegotiation request to the client browser saying, you got to prove to me who you are if you, if you want me to honor the request you just made. So that's where on an established SSL connection, an SSL renegotiation occurs on the fly to establish a new security context, 
which in this case is is uh, is authenticated at each end when the client has the proper certificate. So the point of this is that, for example, um, Apple's recent update to uh, to SSL, which we talked about last week, which removed renegotiation completely from the protocol, would prevent this scenario. And and this is this is an established scenario. So Apple made a decision that said, well, it's so uncommon versus the danger of malicious use of renegotiation that until we get the fully fixed TLS next version, whatever it's going to be, probably a 3.1 or something, um, we're just going to shut this down completely. Almost nobody would be inconvenienced by it. But it is possible that somebody would. Um, and so anyway, that's what this anonymous listener was was bringing back to our right. attention. I did discuss this when we talked originally about, about SSL renegotiation, but I failed to mention it when we were just recently talking about, oh, yeah, you know, Apple updated their security. Yay, because, you know, they've removed renegotiation from the scenario. Well, that could cause a problem for some people. How, how common is per directory certi- certificates? I mean, is that a, a common way to do it? Yeah, it- yeah. I mean, it, it's it, there, there's lots of um, man pages about on the Apache site about here's how you set it right. up, and right. you. I mean, I could easily imagine as a a, a situation where, um, and I know that some corporations do this is they give employees certificates that allow the employees access to private areas because that's more secure than just you know right. a, a username and password. Right. You know, it requires that physical machine with that certificate installed. And you say, okay, if you're going to go down this branch of our mm-hmm. of our web domain, mm-hmm. then you've got to prove who you are. Right. Question, uh, is it five or six? Yep. Five. Joshua in Perth, Australia suggests live CDs are not necessarily impervious. Also, wants to talk about live USB. I've been meaning to post this comment since hearing about the recommendations for live CDs in banking. We were talking about that earlier. Yep. Admittedly, Linux is so much less of a target than other operating systems. But I just wanted to point out that it is possible to modify the live CD and or your hard drive, possibly uh, making, making persistent changes. This is, after all, how CD installers work. And it's usually trivial to get root admin on a live CD, possibly already running as root, known password, and simply prompting the user after which point you can write to anything, potentially even the CD itself, if the OS is running in RAM. We make use of this at work in updating otherwise fault-tolerant systems, which appear not to be writable to avoid accidental writes, but temporarily allow specific deliberate writes. An additional point is that many people, netbook owners, perhaps will use a live CD on a USB key, which is obviously trivially writable. My suggestion is either make sure you put your banking live CD into a CD-ROM drive, I think that's what I was suggesting. (laughs) Or use a USB key with a physical hardware switch lock on it. If you can't find one of those, SD cards usually have the switch and should boot from USB card readers. And for the ultra-paranoid, add a physical switch to your computer, which disconnects the hard drive. What do you think about that? Is that necessary? (laughs) Well, what he's talking about is technically a possible vulnerability. And I liked it just because it's something we hadn't looked at. He said CD-ROM, and he actually meant rom meaning not a not a drive which can even write because he's he's assuming that that we're oh i see cd rom drive i get what he was saying okay. right okay. right not a cdrw for example right. um and so he's assuming that 
um, that maybe something could exist which could alter the literally the contents of the CD. Most well, uh, most live Linux discs are finalized and cannot be rewritten. Too. Exactly. So you do want the disc to be closed so that it will not accept any modifications. And then you know in um um. I suppose a CDRW could erase the disc or make, you know, some changes. But it just, this is so far out there. Right. Um, I, I, just, I sort of liked it from a standpoint of... of He's of thinking point, about all the possibilities. Which is exactly, yep. I mean, that's good security protocol. Yep. Yep. Is, okay, wait a minute. You know, if it's a CDR, then it's a recordable CD. And how do we know some bad thing isn't going to come along and, you know, record something else on it? So technically, you're right. You you know you want it to be absolutely a ROM, and certainly the idea of putting a live CD image on a USB key right. is a little less safe because you know it's writable. The again the 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 comp- with all the hoops that somebody's going through, these seem way way out the bell curve. You know, in terms of of something one needs to worry about, but. This is the way, you know, secu- uh, security thought goes. And he is right about the hard drive. There are a lot of live CDs that uh, save data on the hard drive, and presumably that's something a live CD can easily, uh, if you boot from a live CD image of, say, Ubuntu, that that wouldn't be necessarily so hard to figure out how to do. Right. So that is that is actually, it seems to me, a legitimate uh, com- criticism. Fortunately, yeah. we don't see virus authors planning for that situation. They, every, they pick low-hanging fruit. Uh, exactly. They go after people running Windows 98 <laughs> with, with no security. Ben in Brea, California, makes a terrific and troubling observation about the Firefox uh, master password prompt. Uh, like many, I use a master password to protect my login passwords when using Firefox. We've talked about that before. You absolutely have to do that because Firefox otherwise stores the passwords in the clear. He says, the way it behaves for me is that I'll just be browsing around across many tabs and all of a sudden the Password required, please enter the master password for the software security device window pops up. That's actually uh, the way Firefox works. It doesn't pop that up right away, but often does later and certainly does before you ever need a password. I've gotten used to quickly and automatically typing in the master password so I can get on with browsing the site. What worries me is that the master password window could pop up at any time often for a tab I'm not even looking at, and it looks like any other JavaScript text input pop-up. How do I know Firefox made that pop-up window? Seems to me any website could easily fish for my master password. I just would type it right in, and uh, boom. I would feel a lot safer if Firefox only prompted me at startup before any websites are loaded. Am I missing some way that Firefox is protecting me from this? I suspect a black hat with my master password would also need actual control of my computer to do any damage. But perhaps it's compromise might be one step in some future blended attack. I apologize if you've covered this before. I searched the archives, but uh, I am not fully caught up on listening. Love the show. Thanks. That is a good point. It's a fantastic point. I mean, and again, it's another example of really correct security thinking. Um, If there are any Mozilla developers within the sound of this podcast, um, it would be a terrific feature to add to Firefox so, um, and, and the feature would be, if you've configured a master password, give the user the option of entering it only once when, when the browser is launched. The user would, have to, would under, have to understand the liability that 
if only issuing the password once, that unlocks the password set for the entire browser during its session. But then they should never get another pop-up asking them to enter their master password. And if that ever happened, they knew they would know that it was coming from a script running in a browser window that was trying to, you know, trick them into entering their master password. I mean, this is a classic example of something designed to increase security, which ends up, you know, happening all the time. The user gets gets accommodated to entering the master password and uh, exactly as as this listener says, it's possible to get spoofed and and to enter it when it's not actually the browser asking, but rather something running in a browser window. Mm-hmm. It's a great great thought. Good point. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Moving on. Question seven. Bill in D.C. wonders about quote forcing your lawyer or accountant to use security. My by the way, my lawyer and accountant are very secure, and I checked that. I was wondering if there's a way to force someone to use security and protect our personal information when we give it to them. This is really geared towards professionals like lawyers and accountants, realtors, anyone else who keeps a lot of private information on lots of people. I recently moved to the D.C. area and ran into the situation where two professionals, my realtor and my tax guy, do their official business on Hotmail. (laughs) Both these gentlemen are very good at their jobs, but they're not up to date on computer security, nor, and this is more troubling, do they show an interest in making things more complicated. When I think about potential hacking targets, these guys would be higher on my list since their email accounts contain all kinds of data on lots of people. Whereas most individuals' accounts just contain private their own private information. Since I really doubt that I'd be able to convince them to use, uh, say, PGP, I was considering sending them information in an encrypted zip file and just telling them the password over the phone. That way, at least my information is secure in transit. And when it's residing on the Hotmail servers, I'm sure they're going to store it on an unencrypted personal computer. So I'll just have to hope they keep their work computers patched and don't do any dangerous surfing on them. Any other ideas? I know in the past you've talked about some of your interactions with your lawyer and not even discussing sensitive information over the phone. By the way, I don't have any SpinRight stories to share, but I use it on all my hard drives at least once every other month. I am a huge fan of GoToAssist.com. And in the first 30 days, I use it on several family computers all over the U.S. My mother appreciated the help so much she offered to pay for my subscription. And what she says is a mixed blessing and curse because now I'm always on call for family tech support. (laughs) That's wonderful. Thank you for that, Bill. We appreciate it. He raises a good point, too, and it it does worry me. I see this all the time. He does. Now, for what it's worth, I guess I have a a security-conscious banker, um, at least. There have been times when I've begged my banker to to send me some details of something I'm doing by email. And he ref- absolutely refuses. And he says, Steve, frankly, nothing I could send to you would even make it out through Union Bank's email Good. security. It would Good. just be completely shut down. And he said, I, you know, I can fax it to you, but, you know, or I'll tell you, talk to you over the phone. Um, uh, and um, our, our listener, Bill, remembers correctly back in the the old days of analog cellular uh phones i was unwilling to even have a a conversation with my attorney over analog cellular because scanners at at that time were able just to simply you know scan the frequency and there was no encryption at all it was absolutely in the clear relative to his question of you know what do you do to get 
the the high value professionals you work with to be secure, I would think that the the greatest motivation would be to just sort of point out to them that they would decimate their entire practice if their accounts were compromised, if their account base got loose, if their, you know, Hotmail account was hacked and the history of all their conversations became available to a bad guy, I mean, it would be game over for that kind of a professional. I mean, we see this to a exactly analogous degree among you know large organizations whose whose servers are compromised and all of the details of all of their customers you know their personal identifiable information credit card information and so forth gets loose and it's a huge PR scandal you know the organization is big enough that they're damaged by that but they're not they're not you know it's not game over i would argue that you know, if you have a much smaller, you know, your lawyer or your accountant lose, you know, has that an, an equivalent breach in their security, which seems to me everything we're seeing in terms of trends is aiming in that direction. That is these kinds of threats evolving and moving downstream to to smaller entities being attacked uh, really does create a vulnerability. So, you know, I would I would think our listeners know enough about security and that the dangers that are really present to just bring it up with your lawyer and accountant and say, you know, um, this is what some of the things you're doing. I happen to know are not safe. So, you know, think if you want you need to appeal to their self-interest um, and their self-interest is, you know, consider what would happen if right. it, it absolutely could happen. And I would imagine a professional who's reading the news, who's aware of what's going on, sees stories of this happening in various forms to other people and thinking, well, there, but by the grace of God, you know, and so you might say, yeah, you know, there's some things you could do to tighten up your security. So, you know, bring them into the loop, I would suggest. Let us move on to, yeah, bring them into the loop. Make them listen to this show. <laughs> Move on to question number seven. Eight. Oh, no, eight. Greg Christopher says, mm, no to self-signed certificates. Uh, Steve, I thought I'd start off with your favorite word. No. Unfortunately, Steve hasn't even got a T-shirt, although I have a mug that says no, too. Unfortunately, the title is in reference to a recent response you had to a listener who was concerned about self-signed certificates for the website shadowserver.org. While recent conversations on the show might lead one to believe that identity verification and encryption are strange bedfellows and need not play soccer on the same field, this is actually not true. Without getting verification as to who is on the endpoint, the attack, which you explained on your uh, ARP poisoning page, is very trivial. The problem is anyone can create a self-signed certificate to match the shadow server's self-signed certificate. The warning will not look any different in the web browser because we can easily match the text in the certificate, you know, U.S. California Shadow Server Foundation, mail.shadowserver.org in our own certificate. That's if the user even bothers to click show details, which he or she probably won't. So with a situation in an open wireless cafe or um, on the same Ethernet LAN or even a closed wireless network with a known password, you do indeed have a TLS connection established to the hacker 
will fish away your email, username, password information, and the like. Hopefully, you don't use the same password for other sites you use. Twitter just posted a, a big warning about that, that people, you know, that their passwords have been compromised. And since people use only one password for all ah. these sites, you might want to change your password. Anyway, secure connections are only secure if you truly understand who is at the other end, which is why certificate authorities actually perform an important role. And while a CA may not do a complete security analysis of those requesting certificates, they at least have the capability to make sure that you're not requesting a certificate with a name like Microsoft with a zero instead of an O. I must say it is really difficult to catch any mistakes on the show. I just want to and I, well, and I also want to let you know that my copy of Spinrite has saved my bacon, and I'm an avid proponent of both Spinrite and security now. Thanks very much. Keep up the good work, Greg. Is he right? He's absolutely right. And I, I thought that this bared repeating. Um, he mixes uh, definitions a little bit loosely for me. That is, when he says, anyway, secure connections are only secure if you truly understand who's at the other end. Well, okay, they're only authenticated if you truly know who's at the other end, but they're secure, meaning they're encrypted. So, you know, so using the word secure sort of tries to straddle encryption and authentication. I'm always very careful to to disambiguate the two. You know, we know that encryption means that the data looks like pseudo-random noise. And we know that authentication means that we've identified, we've authenticated the identity of the other endpoint. So it is absolutely the case that it would be trivial for a man-in-the-middle hacker to spoof a self-signed certificate, which is why I thought that it, that Greg's point was worth making. In fact, you could even automate this. If you, if you saw uh, on the fly, you saw a connection being established to shadowserver.org, and if, if malware or, or, or something else, if malware knew that the certificate was self-signed, then it could synthesize the, the, the interception certificate on the fly. And, and send that back to the browser. That would pop up the warning that this is a self-signed certificate. But if the user knew that shadowserver.org's mail server used a self-signed certificate, they go, oh, yeah, I know. I always get that when I send mail through this server. And they'd click on, yes, fine, I know that. When, in fact, they've they've authenticated against a bad guy who can then intercept all their traffic. So. So Greg's point is correct. That is to say that self-signing does open you to any kind of man-in-the-middle attack, because, specifically because it's not a certificate authority that signed the certificate, but rather the certificate signs itself, essentially, which gives you encryption, but really doesn't give you any authentication. And, and so this is the full bad news of what it means not to have any authentication is that even though your data is encrypted, it could still be intercepted. And so that's a, a really good point. Question nine, a couple more to go. Rob McLean in Saskatoon has an idea for getting energy for nothing. 
Hey, Steve. Hey, Leo. On the recent CES episode, uh, you discussed a device which could power devices from Wi-Fi signals. Uh, was that you or was that somebody else? It was, that was me. It's laughable, obviously. I yeah. recently started studying electronics, and while doing so, the same idea occurred to me. It seems that if you took an AC signal from an antenna and ran it through a transformer, you could then turn a few millivolts into several volts. If you then step it through another transformer, you could ramp up the amperage. I haven't had the chance to test this out, but from what I read, it seems to work. In the podcast, you mentioned the math wouldn't work out. In the spirit of the current series, of the current series on the podcast, could you explore why or why not the system works? Also, while researching, I discovered Tesla explored this idea. Yeah, I remember that, so it doesn't seem so far-fetched. As always, thanks for the great podcast. Could you just step it up? Okay. Um, the... The trick here is to discuss the relationship between voltage, current, and power. Um, power is the constant, and power equals voltage times current. So by definition, for example, uh, a watt of power is a certain amount of voltage at a certain amount of current. So... When you, if, and for example, a transformer with a differing number of windings on its primary and its secondary coils is able to, is able to change, for example, the voltage of a, a, a signal on the primary versus the secondary. For example, you know, when all of us grew up running, uh, you know, who had a, a, a train track set a, a lionel a set of, i had exactly, lionel, lionel. Yeah, yeah, yeah so we had a big transformer there which was taking the 117 volt ac signal and reducing its voltage to a much lower level which then made it safe to stick it on the little three rail tracks so that we wouldn't shock ourselves <laughs> right. and it was a it was a useful voltage for the train so the, the, but the problem is a transformer doesn't create power. And in fact, it's a lossy process. The transformer gets a little warm, which means you're actually losing some of the power during the transformation in the form of heat. And you may have noticed it buzzes sometimes too. So yeah. now you're even losing you smell some ozone. Yeah, you, you, you're, you're actually even losing some acoustic energy. Right. So there's a mechanical energy being lost. So it's a lossy thing to do. So... If you if you step up the voltage, then you're going to get more voltage at but at less current, because the power minus the losses of of conversion will be the same. So so there isn't a way to to like by hooking up some transformers in series, you can't step up the voltage and and then step it back down and and get something for nothing essentially and in fact in the, in each of those processes you're going to lose some power hmm. um i did i did misstate something in last week's episode which a number of listeners mentioned i i used the term of flow of voltage and of course I meant current. I know the difference. Um, so it was just, it was something people who were listening very carefully to what I said picked up that I, I mentioned a voltage flow when in fact voltage doesn't flow. Um, the best analogy is, is that, w that we've used in the past 
is to think in terms of fluid, like, like water under pressure. If you have a hose with water, the, the pressure of the water, if you think about it, the pressure is different than the flow. If you, if you put your thumb over the opening of the hose, you can have a great deal of pressure behind there, but no flow. Um, if, you, if you release your thumb over the opening of the hose, then water begins to flow. So the word current, just like it sounds, is like the current in a river or in the hose. Current is actually the, 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 the volume of the flow of the water, and the voltage is the pressure that, that is sort of behind and, and enabling, um, inducing the current of, of water flow. So, so together, you, you multiply the, volt, the, the, the pressure and the flow, the voltage and the, and the current, in order to get the power which that amount of pressure and flow are able to do. That is the amount of work they're able to do. So, you know, they're, 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 there's a close analogy between the electrical circuit operation and, and something we're really familiar with, like, you know, the way water flows mm-hmm. through a hose. And one of the reasons Tesla's research never panned out is because he couldn't ever get it to work. Yeah, he was a master of super high voltages and also high frequency. High frequency and high voltage. There's a, something called skin effect, which happens with high frequency where the, the electricity stays on the outside, that is on the skin. And so one of the ways he was able to do things that looked like he would just electrocute somebody was that it was super high frequencies and very high voltages. Right. So he'd have like, you know, fireworks <laughs> dancing off of his fingertips yeah. and, you know, his hair standing on end and all kinds of crazy stuff going on. Um, you know, he was a master showman also. Yes. Yeah. They both, like, both Edison and Tesla were arch yep. rivals. Our last question is really more of a, a plug for what's to come. Uh, Kenneth Monsante in uh, New York City, speaking on behalf of many listeners who wrote in, says... I'm so excited about the How Computers Work series. Uh, I've always, this is what we started last week. I've always been curious about how computers work, but since I've only been around for about 30 years, the modern machines I've always known seem so far removed from the computers of yesteryear, like your PDP-8s. To me, they've always just been black or beige boxes. I've been using computers since I was a kid in the early 80s. My first machine, a Coleco Atom. Oh, yeah, remember that? Yeah. I also know a lot. That was the stringy floppy that I had. I also know a lot about computer history, Babbage, Colossus, ENIAC, and so on. And I know most of the basic principles of electronics. However, the conceptual gap between those historical machines and the iMac sitting on my desktop seems insurmountable. I would love to really know what's going on inside there. Even in college, no one was able to explain it to me in a way I could understand. I loved your talk about how the Internet works. I'm certain if anyone can explain what appears to be such a complex topic, you're the guy. Looking forward to learning. Thanks to, so much to you and Leo for doing this for all of us. I, I second that emotion, and I know many other listeners do. It's fascinating. I got a lot of really great feedback about uh, last week's episode. And next week, we're going to talk about, um, we, we understand now about sort of the basics of logic gates. And I wanted to give people a sense for how bulky these things were, how... In the lack with the lack of integrated circuits, you know what the what the challenges were that the designers faced. So we're going to look at the the design of an early mini computer in detail and understand 
when we're when we come out the other side of next week's podcast exactly what is machine language wow that'll be fun it'd be like great that. yeah what he, what language does that thing speak what is machine language? <laughs> Steve Gibson is the uh, man in charge at grc.com, a great website for people who love technology. Uh, of course, it's the place where you get SpinRight. You really ought to go there just to pick up SpinRight. It's the most um, insanely useful program you'll ever use. If you've got a hard drive, you need uh, SpinRight. GRC stands for Gibson Research Corporation. That's how you remember it. He also uh, has a lot of free security utilities there, including Shields Up. More than 85 million people, or shields, have been tested there. Lots of freeware. Uh, information about that PDP-8. And in fact, if you go to uh, in the other menu, the PDP-8 computers page, you can learn all about what Steve's doing. There's lots of great videos there. And find out how to order that front panel. If you're one of the people who wants to get Bob's uh, front panel, last chance to do that this Monday uh, will be the last chance to order. That's grc.com. Also, 16 kilobit versions of the show are there, and Steve's notes, and uh, Elaine's transcriptions, and all of that. grc.com. Thank you, Steve. Been a great week. We'll see you next week. Thanks, Dale, very much. On Security Now. Bye-bye. Security Now.